you've probably talked about this already on the show, but the most influential list doesn't necessarily mean influential for reasons that we like. And I think for me, Elon Musk has to be on the top of that list of things that annoyed me this year. A guy with a ton of influence who decided he was curious about crypto and didn't want to bother actually learning anything about it, and then came in and created a lot of disruption in the market and confused a lot of people. This is Opinionated. I don't really have a full understanding of it, but that won't stop me from having an opinion. That's why we're here. Join Features Editor Ben Schiller and reporters Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson. You know, crypto is no longer just about money. It's about culture now. He owes too much money to everybody around him. Part of politics and part of sports and part of gaming. And it's not just like the future of money anymore. As they push the conversation further with their own criticisms and reactions to the latest Bitcoin and crypto news from around the world. We are manufacturing narratives left, right and center. Here's our Santa, Coindesk Santa. Burn, burn. Anna's dropping some burns to keep her fireplace warm in the winter. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello, everybody. This is Ben Schiller. This is Opinionated, and welcome to another show. Danny, are you there? I am here. I'm here in spirit. You haven't left us yet. Uh, Anna, how are you? Hey, I'm good, Ben. How are you? Good, good, good. I can see some Christmas lights in your background there. That's very festive. Yep. Getting ready for it. Great. So we're going to do a little uh, sort of end of the year show today, looking back to some highlights of the year and maybe some lowlights as well. And we're also going to do some predictions for the next year, for 2022. I think it's 2022 next year. And we're joined by a special guest. And I, I, know, I know I say that every week, a uh, special guest, but I do actually think that David Morris, who is Coindesk's lead columnist, is really a special guest. He's one of the biggest brains in our space, and he's a fount of much insight daily and even twice daily. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. What an intro. I mean, everyone, think about the year that we've just had. Uh, you've been an economist at Coinest for a number of months, and you came from Fortune, so you've seen the whole year in, in crypto. What would you say is your main highlight and possibly a low light as well? Uh, well, I'll definitely start with the highlight. For me, I think that the Bitcoin policy in El Salvador was the big landmark moment of the year. In a year where there were quite a few, that one really stood out. You know, recently we had the announcement of their Bitcoin bond, which based on what I've heard, is going to be successful. And that I think has, has implications bigger than people have really processed yet. That is a you know, sovereign nation raising money uh, using Bitcoin, not necessarily in Bitcoin, but we'll get there eventually. And they're going to draw a lot of other countries with them, I think, sooner or later. So that's kind of definitely my pick for the big lock, big event of the year. As far as things that annoy me or annoyed me this year, we're talking a bit about the most influential list. And you've probably talked about this already on the show, but the most influential list doesn't necessarily mean influential for reasons that we like. And I think for me, Elon Musk has to be on the top of that list of things that annoyed me this year. A guy with a ton of influence who decided he was curious about crypto and didn't want to bother actually learning anything about it. And then came in and created a lot of disruption in the market and confused a lot of people, cost people a lot of money. And now he's Times Person of the Year. So it's relevant again. We can talk about Elon. So those are my two for the year, the good and the bad of a very big year. Good choices. El Salvador, I mean, what exactly is a Bitcoin bond and why would a country want to do that? Is there any evidence that, that other countries are about to uh, follow suit? 
Well, I would say that there are two fairly separate elements to the bond that are both interesting. The less interesting part is that it is partly structured so that it returns are based on how Bitcoin performs over the next 10 years. So, you know, we've seen these insane projections where if Bitcoin does really well, you get like a thousand percent return on this annual return on this El Salvador bond, which, you know, would be great. But A, there's no way to predict any assets value 10 years out. I mean, that's uh, sort of notional. The more interesting part for me is they're actually issuing it on Liquid, which is a, a layer two built on Bitcoin by Blockstream. They're going through Bitfinex to actually issue the tokens that will be the bond. So it's a tokenized bond. I think this did not make it into my reporting, but if you buy the bond through the Chivo wallet, which I think is only for El Salvador citizens, but if you buy the bond through the Chivo wallet, you actually get your bond dividends distributed directly to your wallet. So that's like kind of insane. They're allowing smaller denominations to be bought than you can normally get for a bond. They're allowing people to buy it much more directly than you can with a bond as it's issued through the current system. So there's a lot of real innovation there. Obviously, still a lot of questions, but in the big picture, I think it offers a lot of genuine innovation. And of course, my hobby horse is that it potentially gets El Salvador and other countries out of the yoke of the IMF and the World Bank, who maybe do some good work, but by and large have been not great actors over the last 30 years. So I'm in favor of that. So there's a lot going on there. And I think that people haven't even now fully absorbed the implications. It's going to be a continuing thing. Isn't that kind of a wild gamble, though, for the entire sovereign nation to kind of bet on even the oldest and the most popular cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and put the well-being of the whole nation at stake here? I think it's at stake in a technical sense. I mean, I don't know that much about liquid. So that I think is where I would, in the absence of knowing any better, I would center the risk on that because, you know, that's where the bond lives technically. And, you know, there's no rails here. As you said, it's a sovereign nation. They don't have any like super regulatory authority to control these systems. And so they are relying on the stability of of liquid and to an extent of Bitfinex, which is the issuer which I think those are the gambles. I don't think the gamble is on Bitcoin, not because I assume it's going to go up, but because uh, they're not taking the downside risk per se, um, other than the, the purchases that they're making right now. But the actual bond, I don't think it involves any downside risk on the price of Bitcoin for El Salvador. I would have to look more, but I believe the, the most of the downside is going to the bond holders rather than to the country. So they are borrowing Bitcoin and they will have to pay back Bitcoin or how does it? No, they're borrowing dollars and would pay back according to Bitcoin returns. So they're not taking the Bitcoin risk in that direct of a way. They're not borrowing Bitcoin. Now, is this just a play by a country with really nothing to lose? You know, El Salvador is so deep in debt doing this with Bitcoin. Let's leave aside their belief that this really is a wise idea. Could it also have you considered that it might just be really not in a great position with our debt anyway? Let's try this moonshot and see what happens. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to be clear, as I've written a couple of times, I don't think this is necessarily a good investment for bondholders. And I think that they will fill and they'll probably fill a couple rounds again, based on what I'm hearing. But that's coming from Bitcoiners and crypto people who are buying into this for either ideological reasons or depending on your perspective, because it's good for their bags, which it is, you know, it's good for Bitcoin to have this thing out there. As far as 
El Salvador's actual financial situation, yeah, it's not great. And I don't know if I would call it like a, what was the word you used? Like a last ditch effort? I don't know. It's an alternative, but it definitely doesn't change the broader reality on the ground. This is the homeopathic way of going about dealing with your country's financial woes. You went to the doctor, you, you, you said no to all the normal treatments, and now you're, you're trying something new. Well, that's somewhat fair, but I also have to point out that like, the doctor is the IMF, and the IMF's prescription is always bloodletting, which is you know, about the level of sophistication that they would be exercising if they were doctors. So with those alternatives on the table, Bitcoin begins to seem a little bit more appealing. So everyone assumes, as, as you seem to assume, David, that this El Salvador move is a good thing for Bitcoin. But isn't it also possible that, you know, frankly, the El Salvador, which has not ever been known for its financial competence, could fuck the whole thing up and actually make Bitcoin look bad as an investment for a sovereign nation? Isn't that quite possible as well? I want to just add to, to Ben's point, because it's broadly believed that whether it's good for El Salvador or not, it's definitely good for Bitcoin because El Salvador is buying like tons of Bitcoins and, you know, the number goes up. But again, when you see single players, be it MicroStrategy or El Salvador, any other big pocket just amassing huge amount of Bitcoins in single hands, you know, doesn't it look scary for the whole ecosystem that if something goes bad, if something goes wrong for them, they will just dump those Bitcoins on the market, wouldn't they? I mean, I think the answer to both of those is that the, the buys and their impact have been pretty exaggerated, in my opinion. I mean, even when they, they were announcing the bond, Venezuela and, and, and some of the other players tried to frame this as we're buying so much Bitcoin that we're actually going to drive the price up single handedly, which is simply not how this is going to happen. I mean, they're talking about half of it is going to go into a Bitcoin fund, which is 500 million for the first round. And that's 500 million in a almost 1 trillion asset, which is just not enough to independently move the needle, really. And I think the same goes for people like MicroStrategy. And I mean, on the downside, I think we're looking at that all over the place, right? We have tons of big holders now who could absolutely panic and you know create a downward spiral, which I don't know, any day now, we're going to talk about next year in a minute. So uh, we'll get there. And it's weird to think, oh, well, they're buying to boost the price because it's not in their interest to do that. If they're buying so much that they're affecting the market, then it's getting more and more expensive for them to buy. So it does seem they're planning on multiple rounds, right? So like, yeah. I think that the initial rhetoric of we're going to buy this, drive the price up was just to get people into that round. And I don't think it was good messaging on their part, frankly, but it is what it is. All right, let's move on to Elon Musk. He was on our most influential list last week. And as you said, he's on Time's, well, he is Time's most influential person as well. We seem to be thinking in the same way as Time magazine, which I don't know if that's a good thing or not. So we debated Elon quite a bit in our internal meeting. There was a camp of editors and, and reporters that said he was not deserving of this accolade because he's a bit of a kind of, how do you put it? He, he kind of comes in when the market's hot and kind of plays around and uses his Twitter account to- uh, I think that the technical term is he's a twat. He's a he's he's aping in and aping out as is uh, you know between sending rocket ships to, to Mars. He's not really part of the industry. Why is he on the list? And there was another camp to say that he is undeniably influential. Look at the impact of, of his single tweet. So why is it, David, that he particularly gets your ire? Isn't isn't this kind of an easy target for you? Shouldn't you be training your 
ire on, on somebody uh, who deserves it more? Well, I think he's a great example of a guy who has a ton of influence and doesn't use it responsibly. I mean, and we're not just talking about crypto here. I mean, to be perfectly blunt, I don't know how much Elon Musk understands about technology in general at this point, or at least how interested he is in representing it honestly, given that his company Tesla has now been promising to invent artificial intelligence for about seven years now, uh, and they don't seem to be any closer. So, I mean, this is not something that's just limited to the way that he talks about crypto. He's just kind of a doofus. And, you know, I think that getting named person of the year is a great opportunity to call the top on Elon Musk. I don't think his reputation has anywhere to go from here but down. And I've been reporting on Tesla since like 2016. So this is not just about his interference in crypto, but specifically to crypto, you got to be honestly, not just nuts, but like somewhere on the not caring about other people spectrum to just have like a million followers and tweet like hashtag baby doge with no context or explanation or, you know, consideration of how people are going to respond to that. I think he's honestly, he's financially abusing people who support him and it's irresponsible. And, you know, he's been fined by the SEC before in reference to his tweets about his own company. So imagine how responsibly he's going to act when he's making financial advice about things that he's not directly involved in. He's just kind of flailing around, saying things that he thinks will get engagement. He has online brain poisoning and he's a CEO. So it's a bad combination in general. Elon Musk <laughs> has been known for not caring too much about people even before that. He's he doesn't just... even care about his own employees. So don't so, take so financial he, advice from him. He's a little, a wee bit sociopathic then with regards to finance and the markets. I mean, he called a guy who rescued a bunch of stranded school children a pedophile without evidence or any actual reason, and then used his billions of dollars to go to court and take no responsibility for those statements. I mean, this is a really, really strong pattern. I think sociopath is a pretty good word. I do think that crypto deserves such a hero or anti-hero, if you will. If he does have this influence, if it's enough for him to tweet a totally nonsensical phrase to just move the market, maybe it's not exactly his fault. And I think Emily Parker, our colleague, wrote about it, that that is kind of a sign of maturity or immaturity of this market if the market is reacting to Elon's things. One last Correct. thing, though on that, which is, I would say it's not specific to crypto. It is specific to emerging technology financial markets, which is they attract scammers, bad actors, malefactors, sociopaths, because they see opportunities to arbitrage a gap in people's knowledge about a new technology. I mean, let's just say it, Tesla is an arbitrage on people's lack of knowledge about a new technology. It completely fits the pattern. Crypto just happens to be the leading edge right now. Sorry, Ben, I've jumped on you. No, I was going to say that there is one positive thing about Elon Musk, and he surely proves to everybody that a single guy can move the market such as he has. Uh, surely is a lesson for all of us that a dictator or sort of someone who's got an outsized personality can come in and kind of move things around. It's quite sort of Trumpian in, in that sense. Anyway, I think we should move on to your predictions for next year, David. So Let's talk sure. about that. What, what do you think are going to be the big trends? I think we're going to see a lot of activity in DC. Uh, we're going to see a lot of continued action in NFTs and in sports and gaming and that, that kind of thing. What, what are you looking forward to? 
Well, I want to offer one last comment on the previous conversation that is also a transition to my projections for next year, which is I, I do think the flip side of the Elon case illustrates two things that we should be grateful for, which is one, that Satoshi is gone, that we at the least don't know who that is because they could certainly come in and have extremely outsized influence, both in rhetoric and in other ways. I think also I would throw up some gratitude for the way that Vitalik Buterin has carried himself over the last five or six years, given that Ethereum has become such a dominant force and he's absolutely treated as the sole creator, whether that's true or not. And I think he's shown a lot of maturity and actual intellectual engagement with the, the issues rather than abusing his position. So I think that's worth noting relative to Elon. And that transitions to what I think is going to be a big narrative next year, which is the layer one wars are going to get really, really real. I mean, we saw a lot this year with early talk about, I think, particularly Solana and Avalanche, but feel free to chime in with others. But given the issues with fees that Ethereum has had, it became a real opportunity for people to stand up new layer ones that have had some genuine adoption and that I see, I think, having some uh, trajectory. Solana has had some serious issues. I should say I own some Solana and it has had a rough couple of weeks and there are all kinds of trade-offs that these new alternative L1s are making that remains to be seen, whether they're going to be viable. But I think that's going to be a huge story next year. That's my first call. I mean, obviously, for those of us on the inside, we've already been seeing a lot of that, but I think it's going to break out to a new level next year. Let me jump in here for a second on Stellana, because it's worth thinking about what those trade-offs are. Right now, the network is in a period of high congestion, as I am too. <laughs> and You need some anti-spam in your sinuses. I do, I do. I need to inject it right up in there. But as a result, the validators are discussing what to do. I've been lurking in the Discord. And one of the very influential validator who's very active, I won't name names, but proposed because noting that network congestion is the result of a lot of activity, a couple of addresses, so bot trading basically, said that he would implement some code on his validator to just ignore all transactions from that address. To which the executive director of the Solana Foundation said, just so you know, that's the definition of censorship. To which the validator said, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And other people said, well, that's what centralized exchanges do and it works well for them. So I'm not saying that this has actually happened. I don't know. But it is something that was serious enough to be considered and proposed. And if ever implemented, and I don't know if it has, so I, I won't say that definitively, but if ever implemented, that would be the definition of censorship as yeah. acknowledged by people in the channel. To drill down just a little bit on that, you know, obviously don't like that, but that is, I think when we talk about fees, you know, fees are in place to prevent spam and to make sure that every transaction is something that is of economic value. And the low fee environment is appealing to actual users but it's also appealing to people who will abuse that low fee environment. And I think it shows that there's demand for these networks, but that you have to actually pay attention to the economics. And so again, it's about what model is going to play out. I do hope that people in the like Ethereum DeFi space can hold up some of the anti-censorship values that this entire thing is built on, but I certainly can't promise or guarantee that. So I, I think it's going to remain to be seen. All right, second prediction. Um, I think NFTs are going to really, the phrase that comes to mind is not family friendly, but NFTs are not 
going to do well next year. We've seen way too much bubbliness and all this stuff about how they're financial assets now, which they're not, and should not be integrated into DeFi. Do not use your NFTs to take out loans. Do not offer loans against NFTs. This is all really bad stuff and completely fictional. You know, I'm a big fan of NFTs for their cultural collector and other reasons, but this financialization stuff is out of control and people are going to get blown up. So that's my second prediction for next year. Wow. Do you think we're going to see some regulation around that? I mean, if people are being harmed by these things, then that would be an opportunity for regulators to step in. I don't see any possible lever for regulation. There's going to be regulation around, you know, things like fractionalization. I mean, maybe there's going to be something that would target like DAOs that are making these investments, but it would be targeting the DAO, not the NFTs. Because I mean, NFTs are are digital objects, the property, they are only the thing that they are. There are some that have some built-in dividends and other stuff that does make them securities. And in those cases, we will see, I think, some kind of action. At least we'll see some examples being made. But as far as the NFTs themselves, I mean, one of the reasons that they're so popular is because they're not securities. And so they're not subject to certain kinds of regulation. But that can't be taken as an excuse for them being worth millions of dollars. That logic doesn't hold. So I don't know if we're going to see much in the way of action other than the market as people who have engaged in wash trading and other things to pump up the superficial valuation of their holdings, find that there's actually nobody there who's the greater fool. That's what's going to happen. That seems like a very uh, likely prediction. I, I, would, I would go along with that. So number three, what, what's your third prediction? So my third one is we're clearly in some choppy market waters right now in terms of people taking profits. Bitcoin is down pretty substantially. So my third is not necessarily a prediction. It's more of a binary option, which is we either next year go into sort of a quiet-ish period, a, a little bit of a holding pattern, what we would call a build period where people are, you know, we've had absolutely ridiculous amount of VC money come into crypto over the last year. People are now going to have that maybe some, some slightly quieter times to, to build using that money, or we see a serious washout. And that's still, I think, on the table. I mean, I think it would not be something as serious as we saw to in like 2018, 2019, early 2020, where things just go to the bottom. I think we just have too much involvement from too many different players for things to get that bad again. Although I, you know, I wouldn't take it entirely off the table. But I think we could see Bitcoin back down to like 30,000 for a little while, for sure. On the other hand, I, I thought this current cycle would end a lot sooner than it did. So I absolutely am open to being wrong on that. But, but I think the more likely scenario is a little bit of a quiet period next year. So we're not going to 100K anytime soon. Oh, no, I'm sticking to my end of year $100,000 Bitcoin prediction. It's going to happen. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> let me get my wallet. We got to start buying. Here's our Santa, Coindesk Santa. <laughs> Listeners, he was joking. He was joking. Yeah, I'm joking. He meant 200K. Um, yeah, no, why not? Hey, let's double down. That's my <laughs> end of year, 200K. All right. Very, very awesome. Thank you, David, for coming on the show. And we're going to wrap this up now. Thanks very, very much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was fun. Uh, this has been Opinionated. I'm Ben Schiller. That was Anna Bedekova and Danny Nelson. And that was the amazing David Morris. See you next time. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Bedekova, Danny Nelson, and Coindesk's chief columnist, David Morris. Today's show is produced, announced, and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our theme music is by Ellison. 
Have any questions or comments? Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 